John's Gospel this morning, the end of chapter 19, is where we're going to pick up today. We've been talking about this process of the end of Christ's life um, here towards the end of John's Gospel. He's um, He has been arrested and turned over to the chief priests and then ultimately to Pilate. Uh, Pilate, knowing that there was no wrong in this man, chose to appease the crowds and sentence him to crucifixion. Last week we talked about the significance of the crucifixion, and today I want to talk a little bit about the significance of the death of Christ. Um, and, And with a little more detail, kind of reflecting on John's Gospel and asking the question, what can we learn from the death of Christ, because at this moment that we're about to read about today, it is the the pinnacle of the work of redemption. Without the death of Christ, there would be no atonement. Without the resurrection of Christ, there would be no promised new life for each one of us. And we'll get to that next week. But if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to open to John chapter 19. And we're going to pick up in verse 28. John 19, beginning in verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, And at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, They will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took, a, took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloe, aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths and with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he had been crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, um, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Again, this is the, this is the high point of the work of uh, Christ in his mission. This is what he came for here at this moment, 
So I want to talk about, kind of with a bit of reflection, what this that's transpiring in just a matter of a few minutes on the cross and then over the course of the next, say, hour or so after his death, how these things um, uh, affect us as believers or maybe as just a seeker. How do these things affect you? What do we learn in the death of Christ? So let me give you three things this morning as we get into the scripture. Here we go. The first thing we learn, and probably the most important thing that we learn about the death of Christ is this. In Christ's death, we see completed redemption. Completed redemption. Now, the word redemption, in a very basic dictionary sort of sense, uh, means that basically one who has erred or wayward has been made right again. Uh, and that we've all been redeemed of something in our life that, that we've maybe goofed up on or we messed something up and and we've been redeemed of those things. Maybe it involved an apology or a confession. Maybe we had to do something to make the matter right. And then we're no longer in the doghouse. We've been redeemed and we're now in right standing again. But the, the cross takes redemption to a whole new level. Our attention here in the death of Christ is immediately drawn to, to kind of two closing scenes in this act of death. The first that we read about in this text today is where Jesus said, I thirst. We're drawn to that and his words. Now, why did Jesus thirst? And what does this have to do with redemption? Well, in a very basic sense, Jesus thirsted because all who were crucified as individuals thirsted. Uh, The time hanging on the cross in the elements, the bleeding and the massive blood loss that would take place, the trauma that had been done to the human body, all these things bring on thirst. I was reading this week where some ancient writers who witnessed crucifixions um, on their own state that the desperate thirst and cry of dehydration that was coming from the cross was sometimes more overwhelming than any of the other aspects of the agony that was taking place. So when Jesus cried out, I thirst, it was in keeping with what every other crucified individual would have experienced. The physical pain was there, but also there was this agonizing desire to a sensation that could never actually be fulfilled anymore. Never to drink parched beyond the ability to cope. But it's it's not just him saying, I thirst, that gives us a glimpse into the suffering and the agony of the act of dying that draws our attention But the last words that are spoken here, maybe that add the exclamation point. To me, honestly, the most important words in the whole entire Bible. No other writer records these words exactly. Matthew and Mark both say, you know, at the end of his life, Jesus with a loud cry gave up his spirit. Um... But Jesus here in John's Gospel, as is recorded, cries out, 
it is finished. And the Aramaic word here is tetelestai. Not Aramaic. In Greek, it's recorded as tetelestai. This is not a cry of defeat. It's not like Jesus is saying, it is finished, I'm beaten. It's not like, it's finished, I'm done. It's a victory chant, is what God is giving us here on the cross. What Jesus is saying in Tetelestai, it is finished, best translates, it's paid for. That's what he's saying. In very much an accounting or a banking sense, what Jesus is saying here is, the debt is discharged. He's saying, it's paid in full. At this very moment, as Jesus cries out his very last words, and he says, it is finished, and then he hangs his head, and he gives up his spirit to his heavenly Father, what is happening is, the work of redeeming all mankind is done. That's a cool moment. An incredibly haunting moment. It should be for us as believers in the room, if you're a believer in the room in Christ, this should be an overwhelming statement to us. This is when Jesus, who he came for this exact moment. He came for the moment where he could hang on the cross and cry out to everybody and say, it is done. There's no more wrath from the Father that is to be poured out on those who have faith in me. It's done. The gate's been swung wide open for anybody who would desire to come. I've taken every single sin in the world and the Father has been pleased to place it upon me and the price that I've paid has been enough. Debt paid. Paid in full. Never to be brought up again. It is finished. These words are amazing. It is finished. Think about it this way. It is finished. The sufferings and the agonies in redeeming man are over. The work long contemplated, long promised, long expected by the prophets and the saints before is done. The toils and the work in ministry, those years of ministry in Galilee and in Jerusalem, the persecutions and the mockery and the pangs of pain and anguish in the garden and the cross are done and man is redeemed. I love it. I love it. If God were to never give me a church ever again, if God were to never allow me to pastor another day in my life, if God were to rip everything out of my life and just simply leave me with those words, Larry, it is finished. That's enough. And it should be enough for you. No matter what else God does in your life, whatever He blesses you with, or whatever He chooses to take away, Blessed be the name of the Lord. Why? Because the Lord Jesus Christ hung on a cross for you, and when He cried out, it is finished, He had you and me in mind, right? He's given us eternal life at this moment. 
Because compared to the anguish and struggles and hurts that we have in our life and the challenges that we face and the difficulties in our job and raising our children and in our marriages and whatever those challenges are, I'll tell you what, they don't carry a drop of water compared to what the suffering and anguish and pain of hell looks like. Christ took all that on the cross for us. It is finished. He said, Larry, you never have to worry about this. I paid for it. It's done. And I'm never going to bring it up again. And just as a little side note, something to think about. As human beings, you know what we do with our sin? You know what we do with the sin of other people? You know what we like to do? Just keep bringing it up. Who are we to keep bringing it up when Christ has said it's paid for, it's finished? Now, I'm not talking about accountability. I'm not talking about the responsibility of holy living. I'm not talking about the discipline of working in the kingdom of God and keeping your eyes fixed on the the harvest field and being a missionary. Those are all expectations of God, but they don't operate out of a a, a works-based salvation. They don't operate out of something you have to do in order to please God. We do those things because Jesus said it is finished. We don't do those things so that Jesus will uh, save us. There's a huge difference in that understanding. So when we come to other people and we choose to just continually throw their sin up in their face, when they are repentant and they they have asked for forgiveness and we just continue to guilt them and hound them, And then when we do the same thing in our own life, when we want to just keep heaping burning coals on our own self for something that Jesus has already forgiven, that He's already paid for, that's an affront to God, is it not? That's an offense to the work that Christ did on the cross. Now maybe you got something in, in your heart, maybe you got something in your life that you're unrepentant of. Maybe there's something going on in your life that you've not dealt with. That's the beauty of this statement as well. As long as we have a Savior who has cried out on the cross, it is finished, we know that we have a way in order to receive forgiveness and to be made whole again in the wrongs that we've committed. It's a beautiful promise. I love the way Albert Barnes put that. The suffering, the agonies of redeeming man over. The work long contemplated, long promised, long expected by the prophets and saints, done. The toils in the ministry, the persecutions and the mockeries, the pangs of the garden and the cross are ended and man is redeemed. What a wonderful declaration was this. How full of the consolation to man. And how should this dying declaration of the Savior reach every heart and affect every soul? Also important to remember that everything Jesus did was by will. There's nothing that occurred on the cross that did not occur according to the will of Christ Himself. We read here that um, when he had, in verse 30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Even in dying, Jesus was doing what was according to his will. Luke records his death this way in Luke 23, verse 46. 
Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Let me share with you two important things here. The the work of redemption on the cross had two parts that day. First, there was the atoning sacrifice with Christ as the propitiation for our sins. Now that's really fancy. Here's what I want you to write down. The first part of redemption that day was this. You write it down like this. Christ paid for me. That's all you need to know. You don't need to remember propitiation. You don't need to be, remember fancy words like atonement. All you need to remember is the redemption work of the cross. The first part of it was this. Christ paid for me. You and I had a bounty on our head because of what we have done and who we are as sinners. In turn, Christ chose to pay for that instead of you and I paying for that. Christ paid for me. Paul put it this way in Colossians 1, verses 21 and 22. He said, This includes you who were once far away from God. You were His enemies, separated from Him by your evil thoughts and actions. Yet now He has reconciled you to Himself through the death of Christ in His physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself. In that whole text of Colossians 1, 21 and 22 that we just read, according to Paul, what part in that work do we play? Nothing. He has reconciled you to himself. Christ paid for you to redeem you to himself. And we sit here this morning and we're just like, yeah, ho-hum, I knew that. May it never become ho-hum to you what this moment means. The whole 18 chapters of John leading up to this, the whole reason they exist is for this moment. The death of Christ is where God's wrath was appeased. It's where our penalty was paid for. Paul would continually remind us that since we have been reconciled to God, he has also given us the ministry of reconciliation. You read that in Paul's words. He says, you've been reconciled to God. Now, You've been given the ministry of reconciliation. What does that mean? All right, so as a 14-year-old, you know, I, uh, Christ reconciled me to himself. He drew me to himself. I confessed him as Lord and Savior. I was saved at that moment. And at that moment, Christ gave me a ministry. And it's not this one, necessarily, that I stand before you with today. He gave me the same ministry He gave all of us when we were saved. It's called the ministry of reconciliation. It means that from that moment on, the rest of your life, you exist to bring other people to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. 
That's the ministry of reconciliation. He reconciled you, and now you bring other people to be reconciled before Christ. I want to stop here and ask you this. If this truly is the high water mark of redemption, if this really is meaningful to us, if this is the most significant thing in your life, this moment where Jesus gave up His Spirit, where He paid for everybody's sin, where He cried out in a loud voice, it is finished. If this is the most important phrase to you, what have you done with it? Who is the last person that you introduced to the saving message of Jesus Christ? What was the last conversation that you engaged in in order to see somebody saved? When was the last time you invited somebody to read the Scripture, to understand the knowledge of saving message of Jesus Christ? When was the last effort that you undertook to make a disciple, a follower of Christ? I leave in a couple weeks, so can I be brutally honest with you? This church and every other church in America pretty much stinks at this. We go through the motions, we check into church, sometimes if it's convenient, we do the worship thing on Sunday morning, and then we leave, and we never consider how Monday can be more effective than Sunday. We never consider how we can engage people strategically in order to see them saved. We never think of the fact that when I leave this place, the most important aspect of my life is not what's going to get me paid on my next paycheck. The most important aspect of my life is that I've been given the message of reconciliation, the ministry of reconciliation, and now I need to tell the whole world that Jesus said, it is finished. We don't ask the hard questions of how can, I, how can I take less of my pay for myself and give more of my pay to the ministry of the gospel. That would be crazy town. Pastor's always asking for money. I don't give money to the church, give money to a missionary, give money to, I mean, buy 800 Bibles and hand them out in the street, send a kid to Christian camp. I don't care what you do. We have a responsibility to prioritize the ministry of reconciliation because it was so important to Christ. He came to this earth. He gave of his life, years of ministry, pouring into men so that when he would die on the cross and say it is paid for, the ministry of reconciliation would go forth. All right, enough of beating that drum. Second thing, the second work of redemption on the cross. And I love this is the defeat of the devil and evil itself. That's a pretty big blanket statement you're making there. That sounds kind of uh, you know, sci-fi or weird, mystic kind of statement that you're saying there. I'm just telling you that we know, according to the Scriptures, that when Jesus hung on the cross and when he said it is finished and when he made atoning sacrifice for our sins, when he paid for us, he also defeated evil at that moment. Write this down. If the first part of the cross meant that Christ paid for you, the second part of the work of redemption means that Christ set you free. He paid for you and he set you free. Hebrews chapter 2. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, 
he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. We all think about death. Guaranteed. Except for one man, 100% of us who lived will die. Never to come back to this earth again. Death is guaranteed. And somewhere, you know, you see the way that you have to teach your children that, you know, you run into the street as a three-year-old and you bring impending death upon yourself. Somewhere along the line, they turn into teenagers and they think that death will never occur to them. So we choose as a culture to take those aged children who think that death will never come to them and they'll never die, and we put them behind the wheel of an automobile. And then, as you age, you start, you wake up one day, maybe in your 30s or uh, 40 years old, and you start thinking to yourself, you know, I'm near the halfway point here. And, and what have I done with my life? And what's going to happen to me when this life is over? Because you know it's coming. It comes to everybody. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. It means that when we die, uh, we get eternal death. That's what we deserve. Christ came to set us free from that. So not only did he pay for our sins, But instead of being a slave to death, God has set us free to life. It's the beauty of the resurrection. No longer does death need to be a a form of slavery from the evil one. Now think about this. How How many decisions in our life are made based upon the fear of death? Or just the impending idea of death in our life? Everything from uh, how we're going to live in our retirement years, how we're going to handle ourselves, what kind of risks we'll take with regard to um, the things that we do for God, all revolve around death. Is it going to inflict harm on me? Am I going to die as a result of this? And I love reading the stories of people who have come to the point where they fully understand this idea of redemption to the extent where death isn't even an issue anymore. It's not even something really to consider with regard to how far you'll go to serve God. Think about the amazing opportunities that would be afforded to us if we no longer see death as an obstacle, or as Christ put it, bondage. Christ paid for us, Christ set us free. That's the work of the cross. In his death, that's the work of redemption. Now second, first our mind goes to what Jesus said. You know, he said, I thirst, and then he said, it is finished. But after he dies, we see another scene develop here. And it's where they go around and they break the legs of the two um, criminals, and then they come to Christ And they see that he's already dead, and they take a spear, and they jam it in his side. I want to say this, point number two. In the spear, 
we see the fulfillment of Scripture. John talks about this at great length here in his account. In this great moment of pain and hypocrisy, we see the true weight of Christ bearing the words of the prophets. We see that this man was not a fluke. We see that his death wasn't a fluke. John goes to these great lengths to testify to the truth of these words. He says it multiple times. Now look, there's a lot of um, crazy beliefs out there. That um, uh, There's the swooning theory. Have you heard of the swooning theory? The idea that Jesus didn't really die on the cross, that he sort of passed out, and that when they took him down from the cross and they put him into the cool tomb a couple hours later, the coolness of the tomb caused him to revive. And he came awake, you know, once the cool air hit him in that tomb. And he didn't really die. Um, or that he was a faker. I, I don't know how you jam a spear in the side of somebody into their heart. As John testifies. And then all of a sudden just wake up all hunky-dory in a, a tomb. And in your own strength, from the inside, roll the stone away. Because, you know, you've been crucified, beaten, flogged like 40 times. Your sinew, muscle, and flesh have been pulled out of your back. Uh, you've been disjointed. Um, you've had a crown of thorns jammed into your skull. Uh, you've been pierced in your hands and in your feet. And... Now you've had a spear jammed into your heart, but somehow you've been revived in the cool air of a tomb and you rolled a you know, half-ton stone away by yourself after you woke up. And many of us get a hangnail in our foot and we hobble around the house for hours and hours acting like we're in, especially if you're a man, right? You get a first couple days of a cold, you're the... You're, you're on your deathbed and begging for any kind of sympathy you can get. And of course, if you're married to a nurse like I am, you don't get any. But you, you, we, we think that somehow, in order to fulfill these crazy scenarios that Jesus didn't really die, that he just you know woke up despite all these afflictions and just rolled this stone away by himself and came walking out feeling better than ever. This spear testifies to us a very important fact. Jesus did really die. Why did they break the legs? Well, they, the Romans broke the legs of the other two guys because it was the custom. You know, if, if, the, if the guy was still alive on the cross for too long, they would go around and they would break their legs and yes, it added to the immediate level of suffering, but it also served another reason. It hastened their death. And the way this worked was, to be too graphic, but if you're hanging there, your weight is supported in, in two different ways. The weight of hanging on the cross is supported through the spikes that are in your hands and the spikes that go through your feet. In order to breathe... A person on the cross, uh, because of the, the, the pulling of fluids in, around the heart and in the lungs, 
the person would have to push up on the spikes in their feet in order to breathe. That pain was so great, and then they would sag down, and they would hold the weight on their hands and the spikes in their hands. And then you wanted to breathe again, so you would gently pull up or push up on your feet again on the weight on the spikes, and you would catch a breath or sort of a breath. And literally, you are choosing between the agony of the piercings versus the agony of suffocating to death. And this would go on for sometimes a day or more. But the Sabbath was coming. The Jews didn't like the bodies hanging on the cross. And not only was it the Sabbath, but it was what they called the great day. The great day is when the preparation day for the Passover also fell on the same day as the Sabbath. So they really didn't want these spectacles out there, these bodies hanging on the cross. So they asked Pilate. Pilate allowed for the legs to be broken. You break the legs, no longer can you push up on the spikes, so you would quickly suffocate to death. Again, I go back to the, the volition, the, the willful uh, death of Christ. The other two guys are still alive. And whether it was because of the trauma, uh, the massive trauma that Jesus undertook, or the massive blood loss, or whatever the reason was, Jesus died before the other two. But I think it has everything to do with the fact that Jesus knew the work was done now, and he gave up his spirit. They get to Jesus, they see that he's already dead, but they seem to have a sense that in order to assure that he's already dead, they need to jam a spear into his side, into his heart. And what comes out is blood and water. It's a, the fluid that had built up in the pericardium, the, the sac around the heart, and the kidneys begin to shut down. The fluid builds up around the heart and around the lungs. And now as they pierced him, the blood from his heart and the fluid from the pericardium just come pouring out at that point in time. There's no way this man is alive now. Absolutely not. And if he was alive after all this, there was a Roman soldier that was going to be dead. These guys were skilled tradesmen in the act of killing people. They were executioners by trade. You don't fail Rome. You don't fail Caesar. You don't fail your leader. You don't fail Pilate by not successfully making sure that somebody is dead before they come off the cross. Hmm. The hypocrisy was that this is a latch ditch effort for the Jews to get Jesus' death on their terms. And they don't get it. Jesus died on his terms. John said the words of the prophets were fulfilled. That's so true. Let me read to you a few of them. Psalm 34, 19 and 20. The psalmist wrote many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. And then in Zechariah 12, verse 10, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps for a firstborn. 
And Psalm 22.15, My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. So many of the writers of the the prophets, the writers in the Old Testament, were writing messianic words that maybe they did or didn't even understand at the time. See, Jesus' heart had been working so hard to pump blood. Now all that blood and all that fluid was pouring out on the man who pierced him. So, in Christ's death, we see completed redemption. In the spear, we see the fulfillment of Scripture. And thirdly, this morning, in the burial, we see fear beginning to lose its grip. In the burial of Christ, we see fear beginning to lose its grip. Who was Joseph of Arimathea? Well, it's at this point in each Gospel account that we're introduced for the first time to this man. He's a wealthy man. Uh, We know that. It says so much. And he, he has his own tomb carved out in a garden for himself, for his family. It says he was a member of the council, uh, the religious ruling council. He would have been, he would have been a member of that, and, and that would have come with great expectation on his part as far as Judaism was concerned. But we also know that he, he dissented against the decision towards Jesus, the judgment towards Jesus. But John tells us something interesting here about Joseph of Arimathea. It says that he was a disciple of Jesus, yet fearful of the Jews. There's the word fear. He was a disciple of Jesus, but he was fearful of the Jews. And what's happening now, post-death? He comes into a very public situation, a very public stance, a public position, where he goes before the governor of Judea himself, Pilate, to ask for the body of Jesus, in order that he might bury him in his own tomb. Somehow, in the death of Christ, Joseph of Arimathea sheds the fear of retribution and finds his own voice as a disciple and as a follower of Christ. This... this, I highly doubt that, G- that Joseph of Arimathea was invited back to the council after he chose to take the body of Christ and bury him in his own tomb and pay for the expenses of that. But Joseph didn't care. There's something about what he witnessed and what he heard about and what he knew about the death of Christ on the cross that motivated him to do more. Does this sound like maybe a a clarion call to us? That in the death of Christ, when we stand there, we witness, we we remember, we focus on what it is that Jesus actually went through and, and what he did. We begin to consider our own lives and we think about the cost that maybe we should be paying in order to love him more. We forget about the boobers. We begin to forget about those who want to inflict fear on us, who want to label us, and we begin to focus more on the fact that Jesus deserves nothing less. 
That's the story of Joseph of Arimathea. And who was Nicodemus? I mean, the two guys that had the biggest fears leading up to the death of Christ are the ones who are mentioned here stepping up in the midst of the death of Christ. Nicodemus. Let's go back and look at John chapter 3. You remember when we're introduced to him. In verse 1, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The man came to Jesus by night. Now stop there. Why come at night? Because if you come at day, all the other Jews are going to know who you are and what you're seeking after, and there's going to be the fear of retribution. The same deal, he's dealing with the same stuff Joseph of Arimathea is. He's fearful of what people are going to think of him, so he decides to go at night and explore who this Jesus is. And it says, And he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a, te- that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. We learn that Nicodemus was a seeking man. He wanted to know more about Christ. He wanted to know more about this amazing man and what it was that he stood for. We also know that Nicodemus was a teacher of the law. I mean, Jesus said as much, which means that his job was, he was the interpreter of Scripture. He was the one that made Scripture say what Scripture needed to say in order for the Jews to follow along. He dictated what the teachings of Scripture were so that the Jews would follow along with those teachings. And he was a man who feared and operated by night previously. But now he comes with Nicodemus. And something happens in seeing what Christ did on the cross and the giving of his life for the mission that causes Nicodemus to say, I'm going to make a commitment in the daytime. See, the death of Christ moves us in certain ways. It's, I think it's the, the sacrifice that motivates us. Looking at our offering upon the cross reminds us each day of taking up our own cross. At least it should. It's, it's looking at the cross and seeing a death that wins. We think of death as losing. Jesus' death is a death that wins. We no longer need to fear retribution because we no longer operate from that perspective of the fear of death. It's, It's when Christians gather together at the memorial service of a fellow believer. And do we call that moment a loss? Well, yeah, we lose a loved one for a temporary period of time but we recognize their death as a win. Remember Paul's words? For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. I win! 
You die as a believer in Christ, you win. I die as a believer in Christ, I win. We don't think about our lives that way enough. Nicodemus was getting it. These men looked at the cross and their perspective changed. No longer is the purpose of life about maintaining. No longer is the purpose of life about hoarding resources, hoarding time, or managing our existence. Nicodemus, at some point in time, get this, Scripture alludes to this, that at some point in time, perhaps right after Jesus died, maybe while Joseph of Arimathea was going to Pilate to collect his body, Nicodemus went to a merchant somewhere in Jerusalem, laid down some money and said, I'd like to buy 75 pounds of spices. What is 75 pounds of spices? Generally speaking, only royalty could purchase that much. Nicodemus laid down years of wealth in order to anoint the body of a dead man that everybody else in his profession hated vehemently. How do you get to that point? Because spiritual eyes are opened. A person looks at the cross and they see a sacrifice. It's incomprehensible. And you chase after it. Joseph of Arimathea gave away his family grave. And the scripture tells us he it wasn't just a family grave. Scripture tells us that he carved it himself. He said he made it with his own hands. It would be like a man building his own mausoleum or maybe building his own house with his own hands and then turning it around and giving the whole thing away to God. That's what the early church did, isn't it? In Acts chapter 2, somebody had a need in the body. What did they do? They went and they sold a field. You know what a field was? Their whole livelihood. It says if they had property, they sold it. Somebody had a need, they gave the money to them. Why? Because the sacrifice of Christ deserved nothing less in their eyes. We see Paul's words taking hold already. Immediately upon the death of Christ, we see Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 5 taking hold. In verse 15, Paul said, He died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ who died and was raised for them. Man, I wish we could fill churches with people who no longer live for themselves. I wish, I wish the mission of the church again was to introduce people to Jesus so that they would no longer live for themselves. I wish the church would no longer live for themselves and instead prepare themselves to give away everything so that they could go and introduce people to the saving message of Christ and no longer live for themselves. Just a closing thought here, folks. Those who have been confronted by the cross and the death of Christ 
should see this kind of difference in their own lives. Uh, I was just having dinner with a friend on Friday night, and um, a pastor friend, and we were talking about this very point of you know fruit and um, what it means. And what do we look to or point to in a person's life to know that they're a genuine follower of Christ? And there's no hard fast on that. And it makes me glad I'm not God because I don't, I don't need to know such things. But according to the New Testament, there's some really evident things that happen in the lives of people who experience genuine conversion. They look at the cross and their lives, their life's purpose becomes completely different. They lay stuff down that used to be important to them. They prioritize their lives around something that makes no sense to the rest of the world. They prioritize the body and fellowship of Christ. They humble themselves in their relationships. They prioritize the unity of the body over the betterment of themselves. They give and they give and they give and they give and they give until the day they die. These things we see as evident marks. We see them in Nicodemus. We see them in Joseph of Arimathea. And the Holy Spirit hasn't even come yet. Forty days or so and change. The world would change yet again when Pentecost arrives and the Holy Spirit comes heavy upon the church. And the, the man Peter who denied Christ three times would stand before the Jews and say, this Jesus whom you killed died for you. This Jesus died for you in the order that you might repent and give of your lives and be born again. So, uh, I've been wrestling personally this week with my identity and who I am in Christ, and I come back to the cross. We should all come back to the cross. That's who we are. I'm not a pastor first. I'm not even a daddy or a husband first. I'm a paid-for disciple of Jesus Christ first. And that's each one of us. Let's go live that way this week. Maybe you're here this morning and you've, you've heard of the cross, you've heard of Jesus, but you didn't know how it personally affected you. I'm going to tell you, this is how it personally affects you. Jesus had you in mind when He died on the cross. He wanted to take the punishment for your sins upon Himself. He died so that you could be forgiven. All you need to do is, by faith, express your trust and belief in Him. You say, Lord, I... I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm not perfect, but I believe that your son was and I believe he died for me. If that's your heart's desire, God comes into your life and he forgives you and he makes you a child of his own. And he says, and from this point forward, you're redeemed and when this life is over, you no longer need to fear death because once death comes, you'll be with me in paradise. It's a good deal because we don't have to do a thing. Except love Him and by faith trust in Him. Let me close us in prayer with that sentiment.
Lord, we do thank You for the work of the cross, and we thank You for the death of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and everything that it means to us. I pray that we would never tire of the significance of that moment. How humbling that a perfect man would die for a sinful man like me, your own son, and that he would take away our sins, the sins that earn us death and punishment and the wrath of God himself. Jesus took all those things upon himself on the cross so that we wouldn't have to bear them. We praise you for that. I pray for anybody in this room, Lord. They need to make their life right with you. They, they need to confess their sin and say, I, I'm not perfect, God. I'm a sinner. But I don't want to be that person. I want to trust in Christ for, for the forgiveness of my sins. I give you my life, Lord. Here I am. Take me. I pray that you hear their hearts cry this morning and that you would save them as you promised you would. And then give them the boldness to tell me about it or maybe mark on their tear-off sheet and stick it in the offering plate. just says, I, I trust in Jesus today. What do I do next? What a great question that would be. I'd love to see that question today, Lord. And for the rest of us, may we leave this place reflecting the work of the cross in all that we do, prioritizing reconciliation, the ministry of reconciliation, above everything else. Thank you, Father. We take up our gifts, our offerings at this point, and just pray that you would use these resources to make Jesus famous as you see fit. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please stand if you would. Let's sing our last worship song. Thanks, church family. I pray you enjoy your summer day, and I pray that God gives you the ministry of reconciliation this week, that you have the opportunity to engage somebody with the gospel of Christ. Tell them how much Jesus loves them. Okay? You all dismissed. Have a wonderful day.